I'm sure you'll agree with me that one of the best things about childhood is that it is full of friends, isn't it? Not only just lots of friends, but chances are lots of best friends. You remember some of the crazy things you did with your friends growing up? Some of the amazing memories you had? I remember when I was nine, I started a stunt school for uh, the neighborhood kids at my house. Parents weren't very pleased with that, but we enjoy doing things together. Friends are one of life's richest blessings to us, right? And the amazing thing about friendships is that when you're young, they're so plentiful and abounding, but studies have shown that as we get older, friendships are not as plentiful, and they're certainly not as easy to make. You remember how easy it was to make friends when you were a kid? All you had to do was show up, share your M&Ms, and you were off running out to play ball or wrestle in the dirt or look at bugs or put bugs in girls' hair or whatever it was. Making friends was so much easier when we were younger than it is now. You know, and they say that you cannot pick your family, but you can pick your friends. And studies have shown that friends can have as much of a significant influence over our lives as our families. So it's a wise thing to make sure we pick our friends in very careful, deliberate manners. A couple thousand years ago, um, the Greek philosopher Aristotle came up with the first friends list ever. Now, it wasn't a list of his buddies like Dimitri and Plato and Socrates and Leonidas. It was an actual categorization of understanding friends. And, and I think you'll find that they're very similar today. So the three categories that Aristotle came up with are friends of advantage, friends of, uh, he called pleasure or interest, depending on who you read, and friends of virtue or character. Now, these are pretty intuitive when you just stop and think about it. For example, friendships of advantage, uh, f- these are the kinds of friendships that are very utilitarian in nature. Uh, these are the kinds of friendships that you might have, say, at the workplace or on a, a sports league you're part of. You have a friend that's just good at sales or someone that's on your soccer league that's good at their position, and your friendships are based primarily on the benefit that they can bring to you. So this person increases your sales, you win teams, and you have this friendship. Uh, and you can barter benefits back and forth with each other. So you could trade days off at the office, for example. You can borrow your friend's pickup truck when you move or, or lawnmower. So, so that's the friendships of advantage. Aristotle's second list was friendships of interest or friendships of pleasure, and Aristotle said that these friendships are our common interest or enjoyment around something. So it could be something like a fantasy football or a surf club or a photography club or an outdoors hiking group of some sort, some place where we derive, you and the person involved, mutual interests in an object or subject. Now, these two categories, friendships of advantage and friendships of interest, by and large make up most of the kinds of friendships that we've had, and and most of our friendships have began in one of these two general entry points, right? But Aristotle said that there's a third kind of friendship, and he called them the friendships of virtue. Friendships of virtue are also the most rarest because here the friendship is sought for no other reason than for the person themselves and the qualities that they pull out of you. Aristotle said that these friendships seek to help each other to be about goodness, truth, and virtue. Now, many of the friendships of virtue probably started out, as you're thinking about all your good friends, they probably started out as a friendship of advantage or a friendship of interest, but eventually they become something more because the friendship tends to bring the thing, the best out of you 
and you end up becoming what we call best friends, particularly because they bring out the best in us. C.S. Lewis, an Oxford scholar, said something like this in his book, The Four Loves. Very interesting. He writes, the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends, where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend. Lewis says, no friendship, later in the book he said, no true friendship can arise though affection, of course, may. So what he's saying is that when you have a friend and, and, and you say, do you see the same truth of the world out there? And they say, I don't see any truth. I, I just want to be friends. Lewis is saying, you can't really have the kind of friendship that matters. You can have an affection, but not a true friendship, because here it is. He says, there would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. And later in the book, Lewis is saying that the greater the thing that the friendship is about, that it's calling you to, the more virtuous, the more it's a friendship of character in alignment with Aristotle's uh, third category. See, it can start with dominoes or white mice, but Lewis says it brings something out of you that even exceeds dominoes and white mice. It actually even exceeds you and the friend. And that's what he writes about. It's an amazing book. I encourage you to read it. And the Bible has a lot to say about those kinds of friendships. And 1 Samuel chapter 20 is one of the best passages that, that show us what that's like. And so we're going to look at the friend and his king. Let me pray. And I encourage you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 20 if you haven't already. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one in the pew in front of you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather, and just in this morning already, we have sung about truths that are good for our soul. We live in a world that's so focused on the here and the now and the surface, it's good to be thinking about things that really go deep and matter. Lord, to, to be shocked, maybe even to be somewhat heartbroken, to hear of 33 million gods that have ensnared people in this great nation of India. Father, to be here and celebrate as a man who expresses his faith in baptism to sing together, to sing with one another to You. And Father, we ask that You would bless us continually as we open Your Word, that You'd open our eyes and our ears to see and hear wonderful things in it. Father, as we talk about friendship, that gift that You have given to humanity, Father, may it always point us back to You, and we'll thank You for the friendships that do that very thing. And we thank You for what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 20. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we remember, recall, we left chapter 19, uh, David is escaping from the hand of Saul, and chapter 20 opens with David wanting to know if there's something more he can do to perhaps mend the ties with Saul. David is displaying his humility again and seeking to make things right. Now, just so you have a sense of where we're heading, this chapter can be broken down into three concepts. Number one, uh, the friendship, and we're talking about the friendship between Jonathan and David, the friendship was forged or promised, uh, forged by a promise to be about better things. And because of that, their friendship was a catalyst for growth. 
And because their friendship was forged by a promise to be about better things, it became a catalyst of growth. And because of that, this friendship in particular is a picture about Christian discipleship. That's kind of how we're looking at it, and we're going to jump right in it. We won't read all the verses in the chapter. It's a rather long chapter, but we'll highlight the ones that are important. David's reflecting as he's been escaping from Saul for the entire last chapter, the kind of events in his life, and wondering, is he perhaps as fault? Perhaps if he could find out what it was, that he could seek forgiveness and all things could be well. Keep in mind, when we read the Bible, we have what I call the Godward perspective. And what I mean by that is, we get to see all the details and know all the ins and outs, plot twists and conclusions that the people in the story don't know. And so we might think, well, why would David even be wrestling with that? Surely Saul is evil and wants David wiped out, but David's in his story. He doesn't know the end. He doesn't know what's coming in chapter 21, 22 like we do. And he wonders here, what could he have done to offend his king so much? And the character of this young man comes out, we see at the beginning of chapter 20, he's not too proud to ask penetrating questions about himself. Everyone else is singing his praise, we saw that last week, but he knows his heart. He knows he's a sinner. He knows that there could have been things he have done to offended his king. He's not above examining his own heart. David is doing exactly what Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus asked the crowd, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So David's perhaps wondering, clearly I see the offense of Saul towards me, but maybe there's something I've done and I've got to make this right. So he goes back to Jonathan, his dearest and best friend, and we pick it up in verses 1 and 2. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to Jonathan, or Jonathan said to David, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? This is not so. Keep in mind that according to Jonathan, all he knows is that in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, he talked to his father Saul and said things were okay. Saul had promised him that he would not harm David. Jonathan doesn't know that Saul has gone back on his word. And so when David approaches him now, Jonathan's caught flat-footed. He says, what are you talking about? Things are fine. And David realizes his best friend is in the dark and has to enlighten him. Verse 3, but David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know about this, lest he be grieved, but truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. When Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And so, these two good friends, he says uh, in verses 4 through 11, David explains to them, look, we have to find out if your father's truly mad at me, Jonathan, there's a feast coming up. And it's the tradition that I, one of his high officers, would be at the table with him, but I'm not going to show up. And let's see what your father does. If Saul is fine with me being gone, no harm, no foul, there's no problem, I misunderstood. But if Saul becomes angry that I'm not there, then you're going to realize that the reason he's angry is he was plotting to kill me. 
So let's pick it up there. As, as so, uh, David and Jonathan work through this, he talks about this in verse 3 and 4. But David, oh, we talked about verse 3 and 4. Sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So the question is, why does David come back to Jonathan? Why doesn't David come back and speak to his wife, Michael? Why does David come back and speak to one of the king's counselors or advisors? The answer we find is in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. Therefore, David says, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. So, so David says, look, I'm coming to you because way back when we made a covenant with each other. Therefore, deal kindly with me. The word David uses here, if you read the Old Testament a lot, is this word that describes an attribute of God's love. It's chesed. It's a faithful, enduring, loyal, reliable, merciful, steadfast love full of compassion and affection. That's a heavy-duty love for these brothers to share together. More importantly, David said, we have made a covenant together. So David is asking Jonathan to be good to the covenant that they made together back in uh, chapter 18, verse 3. Keep your finger in chapter 20, go back to chapter 18. Verse 3, this is right after David had slew Goliath, and verse 3 of chapter 18 says this, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So in chapter 20, when the, the chips are down, David is holding his friend Jonathan true to the covenant, the covenant based in this kind of faithful, reliable, loyal love. See, their friendship, their friendship was grounded in something so much more than news, weather, and sports, right? Their friendship was grounded in something so much more than what mere interests that they might share together or what might, a, 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 advantage one might give to the other. Their friendship was based in something far beyond either one of them at all. It was actually a covenant, a covenant similar to the covenant God made to His people. They used the word chesed to describe it. And, you know, in, in our day and age, uh, I think it's great that we have social media. I think it's great that we have all these wonderful uh, online communities. If you've got an interest in anything, anything at all, you can go on this one particular website and find a community of people who are into that kind of thing, right? So if you like stamp collecting, if you like uh, bug collecting, if you like board games, there are groups of people who all are into that, and you can get into these communities and hang out. Now, I love that that, that helps us out with what the first two categories of friendship, right? Friendships of advantage, but more in particular, the friendships of interest or friendships of pleasure. It's good to have friends, kind of like the, the new version of the old Elks Lodge where guys would go and hang out and, and be guys together. But the problem with that, I've noticed, is that when we have opportunity to pursue things of our interest and pleasure, Chances are we're going to pursue things of our interest and pleasure to the neglect of the kinds of friendships that Aristotle and Lewis was talking about was good for our own soul, the friendships of virtue and of character. If it's given to us the choice, we're not going to choose friendships of virtue and character because by definition, those things stretch us and call us out of ourselves to something else. And let's be honest, folks, as human beings, we'd rather just stay in our comfort and do what we like. And so while it's great that we have a proliferation of communities where we can connect with people who are just like us, I think it's a short-term gain to a long-term loss. One of the advantages of being in a community where you're stretched and challenged is, guess what? You're stretched and you're challenged. 
And as Lewis says, things begin to come out of you that weren't there before, but would never have come out of you if you weren't stretched and challenged. Friends, that's why I think membership in a local church is an amazing thing. Because in this community, I don't get to choose, you don't get to choose if you're a member of this church who walks through those doors. We don't get to choose who God says, I want to be a part of this church. We don't get to choose necessarily if we're all the same interests or the same views on life, that we see things the same way. Sometimes we actually have to be with people who we have nothing in common but Jesus. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. And so, it was the last week or two weeks ago, we had 18 people standing up here, and we as a membership said, if that's what God brought us, we didn't really say this, but in a sense we're saying, <laughs> if, if, if these are the people who are saying, hey, I want to get into a covenant, I want to get into a covenant of people, not based on the fact that you like the same music I do, or that you dress the same way I dress, or you're just like me ethnically, or you like the same food I like, that's none of those things, except look, I want to be in a covenant of people that are going to call me to holiness because I know in myself I'm not going to get there. I want to be in a covenant of people that will encourage me towards the things that are ultimately my good, even if they're challenging. I want to be in a covenant of people, can I say this, that will actually get in my face. Because guess what? Your online community for, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in, they're probably not going to get in your face when they see something that they should get in your face about because that's not what the friendship is about. The French is about your pleasure, not your holiness. And so that's why I love the local church. That's why I love being here. Because I am put with people, in some cases we have nothing in common. And I love to find out that ultimately we actually do in Christ. And David and, and Jonathan, because they had a friendship that was forged by a promise to be about better things, their friendship was a catalyst for their growth. Look at uh, verse 12. We're going to read from verse 12 through 17. So, uh, uh, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you as well, and send you away safely, that you may go in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, however, show me steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. Verse 15, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear by a covenant by the Lord, again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. So what do we have here? Two very unlikely promises taking place. One from Jonathan, the crown prince, to David to secure David's future. He says, look, if, if, if it's going well for you, I'll tell you. But if you're in trouble, I'll let you know as well. See, Jonathan is not making any political sense here. He is the, the heir to the throne, and David is the one that could threaten to take his throne away. This is actually what Saul gets upset at him with in verses 30 to 31. Jonathan is not thinking about his kingdom. Yeah, honestly, it's because Jonathan is actually thinking about a different kingdom. So he makes this promise to David that I'm going to take care of you. 
But notice, though, he, David makes a promise to Jonathan that, that Jonathan says, look, but if you, when you come into your house, verse 15, care for me, don't wipe my family out. And the reason being is in ancient times, when a, a new dynasty or regime or king came in, the name of the game was purge, man. You get rid of the entire family because you don't want any threat to your, your throne or your crown. So Jonathan recognizes, David, you're going you're to become king, verse 15, and the Lord's going to get rid of all your enemies. Make a covenant with me that you won't destroy my household. And David says, look, not only will I not wipe your family out, I'm going to love them, I'm going to care for them. And, and David fulfills that in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So David's promise is crazy too, because if he's going to be the king, you, you would think that he would wipe out the, the, the prince and the prince's family. But David says, no, because you're committed to me. I'm going to care for you. It's amazing here that these two unlikely friends, but the one, the crown prince, the other, the upstart kind of populist leader that's supposed to be the king, two men who couldn't be more different by culture and politics, rivals by faith, the best of friends. It's because both of them were about things greater than either of them. You remember this? Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and David in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Both of them in very different situations, they didn't know each other, but saw a reality and saw the reality through the, re- through the reality that God exists and His honor and name is on the line. And they were living for His glory, not their own, so they were moved to action and God did amazing things. And when they met each other in chapter 18, they knew instantly we're, we're cut from the same cloth, and they loved each other with a deep love. Friends, we need to be looking for friends like this, right? I mean, I talked about those online communities. Those are great, but we need to be looking in the, in the relationships God has given us for men and women that are Jonathan's and David's. Men and women who are not just concerned about news, whether sports and makeup or whatever those things are. Men and women who are living for things greater than themselves. And this is applicable to you whether you're 50 or 15. Because friends shape us and mold us. And we want friends that are like Jonathan and David. Men and women who see this reality with a living God. And so... We're going to summarize verses 18 to 27. David and, and Jonathan concoct this plan about the feast, and then they say, well, well how, do we, how do I communicate to you my father's intention? And so Jonathan has this idea that on the third day after he talks with Saul at the feast, if things are fine, he's going to shoot an arrow, and he's going to send the boy to get it in one area, but if things are not fine, he's going to shoot an arrow in a different area and say something different to the boy, and that's what they do. Let's fast forward to the feast and find out how Saul is responding to David. Saul figures out that David's not there and asks his son Jonathan, what happened to David? Jonathan answered Saul, verse 28, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, David has not come to the king's table. Verse 30, and Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Uh, yeah, that, that, this, is, this is like cussing in olden day in Bible times. <laughs> that, that really is. Like, we don't talk like that, but that's, that's cussing right here in, in Bible times. And, and here's the irony. 
Jonathan's actually the son of a perverse and rebellious man, right? So, so Saul says this to his son, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, he doesn't even name David anymore, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. I'm just going to keep reading because this is good. Jonathan, verse 32, answered Saul, answered Saul's father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Saul couldn't comprehend, and put the air quotes, the stupidity of Jonathan. That he would simply throw away his chance at being king. That he would allow this young upstart to ruin the family dynasty made him livid. See, but the truth is, and Jonathan knew this, the truth is the kingdom wasn't his to claim to begin with. It was a gift that God bestowed. Now, if David modeled something for us beautifully in verses 1 and 2 uh, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jonathan does the same here. You see, Jonathan's not seeking his own kingdom. Jonathan's seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting that God will give to him all things necessary. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things, what are all those things? The people were concerned about the things of this world. Jesus, where are we going to eat? Where are we going to find food? Where are we going to get shelter? All these things are legitimate and real. Jesus says, look, I get it. Your heavenly Father is a Father, and He gets your need. You don't need to ask Him for the things you need. He's going to give that to you. So focus on the things that are really important. Right? Your, your kids shouldn't come up to you and say, Dad, will you please feed me? Would you please shelter me? They don't have to ask that. They, 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 they feel entitled to it, right? It's like, you're supposed to feed me. You're supposed to shelter me. That's right, because I'm dad. So Jonathan models that. He's not worried about the things of this world. He says, what's important is God's plan. Jonathan is more interested in God's plan and him being faithful to God's plan and being true to his promises than he is of even being king. Now, David, life's lesson earlier, life lesson to us was this humility. And Jonathan's life lesson is, is one of the greatest things. I'll never forget it. Uh, it. It didn't necessarily come from this passage, although Jonathan exemplifies it. When I first became a Christian, uh, a Christian for about a year, I was 17 years old, went to my first men's conference, and I don't remember the speaker, I don't remember anything about the conference except one thing, and to this day I remember it, and it is powerful. And it's not just for men, it's for men, it's for women. The one phrase he said that just hit me that I see in Jonathan was that the, the speaker said, a man, and this is a men's conference, so imagine he could have said a woman as well, but a man is only worth his word. A man is only worth his word. It doesn't matter about any other thing you do. If your word is not your bond, if what you say is what you do, if that doesn't happen, nothing matters. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. But when your word matters something, you're a man or woman of integrity that people respect and admire. But when you're a man or woman whose word isn't worth anything, 
You're worth nothing. Proverbs 22 says it this way, uh, a better name is to be chosen than all riches and wealth. Jonathan knew that he had made a covenant, and he's going to keep that covenant to his harm. His word was his bond, and he knew he's only worth his word to his friend. But it was tested, wasn't it, by Saul? Do you notice that? Saul tested him by trying to shame him, by insulting him, right? He, He tried to guilt him by saying that you are bringing shame to your mother as well. And then he tried to appeal to his greed. He said, so long as this upstart lives, you'll get nothing. Those are some pretty significant temptations. Your honor is at stake, the, 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 the name of your family, your mother, not having anything that was due you. But Jonathan responds correctly. And because of that, their friendship particularly Jonathan, is a picture of discipleship. So, because their friendship was forged by a promise to be about better things, it became a catalyst for growth in their lives, right? And because it was those two things, this friendship in particular, pic- particular is a picture of discipleship. Verses 30 and through 34 of 1 Samuel 20, this is key in the narrative, friends. This is key. You recall in chapter 19, there was a point where Jonathan could mediate between, between Saul and David, that Jonathan could bring them together and bring peace, that he could make things okay, but no more. That's, that couldn't be no more. Saul accused Jonathan that he had taken sides. He was siding with David, verse 30. It was now decision time for Jonathan. It's the relationship between David and Jonathan. It's not a great pic- just a great picture of friendship. It's a picture of discipleship. Jonathan loves David, not just as a brother, but Jonathan loves David and recognizes him as his king. Our passage ends with verse 42. Go down to verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Keep in mind, this is, this is I believe, the last time these best of friends will ever see each other again. Jonathan dies in battle, and David never sees his friend again. Jonathan says, verse 42, go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between you and me, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Because of the promise that was made, because of the covenant that was made between David and Jonathan, Jonathan can say to him, go in peace. But it was a peace that came at a cost. You see, the same covenant that Jonathan and David made that brought peace there, the same covenant brought hostility between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan had to choose. There was no accommodating. There was no middle ground when it comes to kings. There's no divided loyalties here. And all through the book of 1 Samuel, David is the anointed king, right? Remember that. David is the anointed king who merely points forward to the true anointed king, David's greater son, Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 tells us Jesus was David's greater son. And as king, Jesus doesn't allow for divided loyalties either. There's no middle ground. We have to make a choice, just like Jonathan had to make a choice here. See, we have to choose between the peace between the real king and the peace that we might have between friends and family and our culture. 
Now, many of us will never have to make a choice as stark as Jonathan's choice, but we all have to choose. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, whoever loves me, excuse me, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, Jesus is not saying you can't love your mother or father or son or daughter. What he's saying, he's putting the issue on the table. Which will you choose? Which is your ultimate? Who's going to be your king? To side with Jesus always means difficult decisions. Jonathan's not just teaching us to be a good friend. He's teaching us to be a good follower. Like Jonathan, are are we going to give up our our pretensions to our pretended rights, our claim to authority? Are we going to claim all these things as our own, or are we going to claim Jesus or David's greater descendant as the true anointed king, and are we going to trust ourselves to him? Like Jonathan, are we going to bind our future to his? Are we going to give up control of our lives to his destiny? And like Jonathan, notice though, in his act of self-renunciation, what does David say to him back? I will take care of you. I will care for you and your family. The parallel is there. It's obvious. Are we going to claim and cling on to our our claim to right and rule? Are we going to recognize the true king and say, look, I bind myself to you? This is what Jesus was getting at in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 35, and calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. See, at his best, at his best times, at his best moments, David is a pointer to Jesus. So the question we have to ask then, when it comes to God's king, are we going to be more like a Saul or are we going to be more like a Jonathan? Right? Saul, who, who was determined to cling to his power. Saul, who was determined to cling to his throne, his right to rule, and in so doing, he became a parody of himself. The harder and, and, and more tightly Saul tried to cling on to his self-proclaimed rights and power and privileges the more he became a shell of the man he was, remember in chapters 10 and 11. Or Jonathan, who recognizes David as the true heir to the kingdom, (laughs) to to his own loss, but he recognizes whatever I'm going to lose, when I freely give up for you and your authority over my life, I want to bind myself to the one that God's chosen. And that's what we see him do. You know, David is also a pointer to Jesus in the way that Jesus divides, or excuse me, the way David divides the kingdom, right? In the following chapters of 1 Samuel, people will be divided. People are going to have to make a choice. You're going to see that. Whether they embrace David's claim as king over them and love him, or they reject David's claim as king and they hate him. And Jesus is the same way. We either love him or we hate him. See, if, if you're not kind of on any one of those extremes, that, that if you're not in love with Jesus, right, and if you're not ticked off with him, it's because you don't understand what he's actually saying. There's no way you can understand what Jesus is asking of us and not either say, you are the one I've been waiting for, or say, how dare you make those claims over me? 
You see, I think a lot of times when we think of Jesus in our culture, we think of Jesus when he says, I am king, we hear him saying, I'm president. And you can deny me, you can filibuster me, you can even try and impeach me, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus always divides people. And you're either going to love him because you know he's the king, or you hate him because you want to be king. But David does the same thing. He points us to that. We need to close, but... Just, just remember this last parting thought in our lives. There will be something in all of our lives that is most precious to us, and we will be angry when it is threatened, and we will be willing to bear the anger of others for our allegiance to that thing, whatever it is. It could be a relationship. It could be a career. It could be to an ideology. It could be to a lifestyle. But whatever it is, something in all of our lives is going to be the most precious thing. And we get angry when it gets threatened. And we're willing to bear other people's anger when we stand up for that thing. And, 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 and we're going to bind our future to it. We're, we're going to make ourselves about that thing. And we're going to give it authority over our lives. First Samuel chapter 20, we're seeing clearly that God's saying, there's only one who's deserving of that position. And it's the one God has chosen. David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Any good, true friendship, and the greatest thing a friendship can do is make those kingdom truths more of a reality in our lives every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 1 Samuel chapter 20, an amazing passage. And Lord, what seems to be on the surface just a great chapter on two friends and their love for one another and the commitments they've made turns out to be a chapter, turns out to be a picture of us having to make a decision for the true king or the many false kings in our lives. Father, we just heard Varghese talk about 33 million false kings claiming allegiance over the lives of the people of India. And Father, we don't have 33 million gods and statues, but we are plagued with 33 usurpers to the throne of our lives as well. And so we ask in your mercy and your grace, by your Holy Spirit, would you make us willing to renounce our own throne so that the true King, David's greater Son, Jesus Christ, can sit, sit there, Lord. And we'll thank you for it. In his name we pray. Amen. The following message titled, The Friend and the King, was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of our series in the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.cccLH.org.